Hello, and welcome back to Often Wrong, Never in Doubt with Montgomery West. I'm your host, Montgomery West, and today we have James. Hello. Hi. Okay, how, how are we? What are, what's up? What's happening? Um, I just, I just got home from school. Um, so that's mostly what's going on in my life. I'm like quarantining at home, um, not doing very many things. What have you been doing in school? I don't know because I assumed, okay, because when I talked to you in December, you, okay, this, I'm just going to repeat what I heard from you and what the telephone, what passed through my brain is that you were sort of like settling down between ideas of like majoring in something like urban planning or economics. Is that actually something that you had said or hinted at or am I imagining things. Since freshman year, I've really been trying to take classes in all different departments and figure out what I really like to do. Um, and um, I settled down between um, either urban studies, economics, or art history. For the past month or so, I've been like, you know, I've really liked my urban studies classes. And um, I can still take art history and economics, like regardless, right? So um, that's where I'm leaning. Honestly, what happened to your interest in linguistics? I mean, I feel like you still like language, obviously. Yeah. So you always like language. I went into college um, intending to do linguistics and French as like a double thing. So I took linguistics my first semester and two French classes my first semester and I was like you know what I really just like learning languages like as a hobby and I don't want to be sitting here going through problem sets trying to like piece apart Hebrew morphology you know <laughs> and so I I don't know. I feel like I was maybe a bit naive about what linguistics really is and the kind of work that it entails. It's not just, um, I really enjoy learning languages mm -hmm. and that's different from learning the mechanics behind languages. Yes. And I think I conflated those things to a certain extent um, in a way that I shouldn't have um, approaching it. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it was good. I, I tried it and I didn't love it, but I still learned a lot in the class that I took. And so I'm still taking like language classes. I've been taking Arabic since I started college and I'm still taking French classes all the time. So, you know. Yeah, I think that's definitely how it should be though. I think uh, a lot of people are told at the end of high school that like they should be encouraged. Like if they have something they're interested in, like uh, like you should make that your degree. Like you should try and just like milk the fuck out of everything you're interested in, in some sort of like fruitful, productive way, if that makes sense. Like anytime, um, like I would think about like, oh, like I watch a lot of TV or like I'm on social media all the time. And someone, if you, I were to tell like a college counselor that, or even like my dad that he'd be like, it, it's fine. Like it'll come in handy later. Like that's a, like, you'll be a PR person or you'll do this sort of like media and culture related thing. And it's like, I don't actually really want a degree in anything that I do in my free time, except yeah. for art. I guess that's kind of hypocritical, but 
that always circles back to um, sort of a larger conversation about when you go to high school doing art two hours a day, is it really for fun at that point? Not really. Like most of my artistic obligations are for school. And then if they're not for school, it's because I think I should have them because I have stuff for school. So, you know, you get sort of lost in the sauce about like, why am I even doing this? And I think it's cool that you recognize that like your love for learning languages should be independent of what you want to end up like leaving college with and doing in the future. Because, you know, knowing you in 10 years, you'll be like, um, you know, I actually just picked up six or seven new languages and I'm heading on a trip right now to just exercise all my skills. Yeah. And I think there's definitely a pressure to try to monetize all of the skills that you have and that you develop in your um, personal life. Like not just to study these things, but to like make them this central aspect of your life and get other people to pay you for them. When really like, if it's just a hobby, it can be just a hobby and that's totally okay. I definitely agree with that. And also how I think more and more people push your career to be like your identity in that way, like to, to have like your centralized interest to be your career, which yes, your career is something that you will spend probably maybe the most time on depending on your values, I guess, if you value like being able to like make a stable living or something like that like maybe your career is the thing that you have to focus on the most. And so like, there's this pressure to conflate your personality and like how you align yourself as a human being. So you've taken a lot of art history classes, right? Yeah. So I, for visual, I have not been required to take art history, but like my current teacher, who's the head of the department, like he was just sort of like dumping a lot of videos and like lectures on us throughout the year. And so now whenever I like talk about things, I feel like I always just tap into how the people on Khan Academy talk about art history. Like the way, I don't know. Okay. I wish I had a specific example of the language, but like, I feel like when you learn how to describe art, you develop, like it unlocks something inside you. That's like, okay. I was at pretentious level, probably like two before, but now I feel like I've like leveled up to pretentious level seven. And it's like one of those things where I'm like, no, it's really cool that I learned this thing, but there is no way to talk about it in front of people that have never learned about it without you sounding like a complete like dork or not even a dork, like just an asshole. And I don't really have a conclusion or a question about that. It's just like an observation within myself. Yeah, absolutely. I totally know what you mean. Like there's just really obscure terminology and like, I guess like not quite buzzwords because they are describing particular things, but like, just like. You could make up stuff like post-secular humanist. Exactly, like, no, exactly, yeah. Someone who doesn't know what art history is would be like, no, that's what Leonardo DiCaprio, I mean, Leonardo da Vinci was doing, right? And you'd be like, yeah, he was a post-modernist, brutalist, secular human. <laughs> and everyone would be like, that sounds about right. I, I really it's like I really never noticed that when I was looking at uh Mona Lisa or whoever but you know if you say so there's a lot of hand wavy things I think that's sort of 
how people refer to that type of language, sort of just like, nah, yeah, that's probably right. You're probably in the right ball ballpark. Yeah. Which I've run into in my AP art project, which is reimagining historical art, which is like, I'll just like Google a time period. And then if I find a cool word that describes the period of time, which be like, yeah, no, like my piece is super like Basquiat, Art Nouveau, like just start talking out of my ass. Um, but yeah, it's definitely fun, but definitely like a dangerous territory. Like you could probably, I would love to see a, uh, a, a I don't know, a rap battle, not a rap battle, <laughs> <laughs> a debate. <laughs> what is the what i was like what what is the non-musical version of a rap battle that's like that's a debate debate? (laughs) (laughs) oh my god (laughs) the acoustic version of a rap battle if you will a debate I need to see a debate between like, oh no 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 not a debate even better a Socratic seminar that's what I'm yep. thinking yeah <laughs> <laughs> I need an to see... rap battle wait okay um I need to see a Socratic seminar between like an art history buff a film bro and then a stock market dude like i think that would be the most annoying but fascinating conversation Mm -hmm. i don't know where i don't know like where the intersection is like what would what would they be talking about but like do you i don't know if you were on twitter when you saw that those memes that were like dream socratic seminar the topic is like the death penalty and it would be like a random mix of like characters that from like cartoons and then like politicians and like random celebrities I really enjoyed that personally like I I got some good laughs out of stuff like that because it's like yeah I would I would absolutely love to see Kylie Jenner talk to Miraculous Ladybug and Donald Trump yeah death penalty (laughs) those are horrible celebrity um examples by the way I hated that I hated every I hated every name that just came out of my mouth we move that's if i learned one thing from recording these is like we move let's just we just got to keep going what else can we talk about i'm like what's happening what else is happening i mean like we could talk about sia no my life dude my okay, life okay, okay, has gone okay. absolutely downhill since sia started going off the rails and i think part of it is just like i've I've been in like a music rut for probably several years now where like, you know, there might be times when I find new artists or like, um, like I find just a new genre that I really like and that I get to explore for a while. And it's like good for a few weeks and then I get tired of it. <laughs> Since the downfall of the Sia industrial complex, like my life has had a similar downfall that's like it's mapped kind of pretty well onto the pandemic and like combine that with my like overall diluted level of happiness because there's less music that I really enjoy you can't even go back to Sia in the same way I can't even go back exactly 
I don't, I don't know what she's doing. She decided to start making, like, you could see the roots of the problem starting, I think, when A Thousand Forms of Fear, like, came out, because she moved from doing, like, I, I don't know music genres, so I couldn't tell you what it is, but, like, her more, like, acoustic... Her previous albums were more niche, though. Like, she wasn't an established yeah. artist prior she to wasn't. A Thousand Forms of Fear. She was a theory. songwriter for established artists. And, like, her music was much more niche. And her music started to become more commercial. And she, like, ended up on Ellen. And then she released an entire album um, of, like, songs that she had written for other people that didn't end up like seeing the light of day um, and that she just ended up recording herself. And those are like mostly, I think kind of just cheesy pop music, you know what I mean? Like very commercial pop music, but like it's good, but you know, the lyrics are all, you know, a whole lot of cliches. And that was kind of the hint of like, hmm, something's going on here. Like she's really good at like cranking out like hit songs. Like she knows what's going to be catchy. But then she was like, she started moving on to do like more dance music and more like, I don't even know what you call it. Well, I think when she found Maddie Ziegler, you could argue that the idea of what should be what her commercial market is kind of shifted once she became obsessed with the idea of Maddie as sort of like a figure of herself. She sort of had to move in a way, like she had to sort of keep continuing down the path that she'd set up with A Thousand Forms of Fear and using Maddie as sort of this like figurehead and like the face being the face of her music. But I also derailed you. So if you had a continuous thought. Yeah, no, I was just gonna continue and say that she started she like started doing music with Diplo and Labyrinth which I was like kind of okay with at first and it got some popularity and then it started getting worse and worse and then all of a sudden here we are with this super ableist movie featuring all of this music There are a lot of details surrounding the actual film that I forgot about that I like read threads about and was like, oh my god, this is horrible. Sia, what are you doing? And then I forgot the specific information. But what I do remember is like it inspired me to go down a rabbit hole into just Maddie Ziegler and like her relationship with Sia and like sort of like why does Sia care so much about Maddie Ziegler being the person like at all times Like, I understand what it's like to have a muse. That's a concept that's pretty ancient in art. And, you know, I would like to give Sia the benefit of the doubt that she found Maddie at such a young age and was like, I love her talent. I really want to give her a platform, even though she was already on Dance Moms at that point. So she, like, already had a platform, but still, like, oh, I want to invite her into, like, a real dance job at a very young age and give her, like, a spot in the industry, basically. Yeah, I think it's kind of bizarre how as someone who was so opposed when she started like really first blowing up to having a public persona like and like showing her face like she did performances and like concerts where like she was either not on stage at all or was facing the back 
or, you know, she did the whole thing where she had the wigs that covered her face. Mm -hmm. And recently, like, that has just completely flip-flopped. Like, she still, like, doesn't really show her face that publicly, but she draws, like, as much attention as, you know, you could even imagine. Yeah, more than the rest of her career. Yeah, like, she's never been more well-known. And more like hated yeah and it's just a bit ironic to me given that she was so insistent upon like not having a public persona and being behind the scenes and just being a voice and a songwriter you know and not like a a performer because you know that's ultimately kind of what she's doing not in the same way as other artists but she's still a public person just as much as anybody else is yeah that is odd how like you know you see her public persona and you're like you know what maybe I can kind of see why your managers and whatever were like maybe it's a a good method for you to be not a person (laughs) and just drop drop those songs songwrite for people that's the other thing is like because she didn't really Aside from the evidence that, like, she wasn't saying anything problematic or implying anything in her earlier music. Like, there's no evidence, because she didn't have as much of a public figure, there's no, like, old video footage of her saying something that's like, oh, that should have told you, you know? Like, there are plenty of other, like, artists that, like, you have old found footage of stuff that, if they're, like their behavior now like could be you could actually compare the two and then it would make more sense with Sia it feels like because we haven't seen her public thoughts as much as any other like rising artist I feel like or seen her publicly her image and associate her with her image it's like it feels out of the blue when she's just like look at my face for the first time also by the way you know and she just like yeah she went immediately from like I'm the one who performed on Ellen not looking at the audience to like, oh, actually, I'm like a really shitty person. And it's like, maybe you should have kept your head turned. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Kept kept the Twitter off. Yeah, that's the truth for most people. Most people should just not have access to Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been nice if she hadn't written an entire movie as well true like yeah I always think about that like okay whenever there is like a new movie or like piece of media that's serious like that's coming from an an artist that like isn't in that industry like for example Sia being a musician and now getting the rights like direct this whole movie or getting the opportunity there's always this question from like the general public that's like, who let this happen? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I know it's like, part of me is like confused because I think some people actually do mean it rhetorically, you know, cause they don't want it to happen. And then some people are seriously like, couldn't they see that like, C is just a singer and like, she doesn't really have a public figure. Why does she get to, or like public image? Like, why does she get to have a movie? I feel like it, the obvious answer is money and advertising and seeing the way that like Sia has been it makes sense like now is the time where she's just like being an asshole on Twitter like once you're just given 
a place you will just like even if you forget what your past was like i feel like these celebrities just like act like they've been there forever the entitlement it becomes more like more clear than ever oh speaking of sia yeah remember in fracas there was like the fabric act to instrumental sia that was like a last minute change elastic heart whose act was this your act in circus fracas of 2017 no it was clara and was it shira was shira there that year yes that's crazy i think circus fracas might have been okay i to be to be fair i wasn't there before fracas so i'm biased but if we're giving my monty biased because i was in youth circus at the time guess of best group of people in youth circus it would have to have been fracas's year like there was so much like random funny shit all the time like when we had also i think it was because of the setup because we were in the theater doing a show so we're all tightly condensed and the rehearsals were way more condensed whereas like when we had it in the big gym it was like more blocked off and separated and the days felt more disjointed but like when we were in the theater, we were all like toughing it out together. Probably the hallmark of that rehearsal experience was definitely um, Skylar getting her finger stuck in the <laughs> hole. <laughs> so, so, oh, I totally Before we continue, I need to explain this. So basically in this show that we had in 2017 for Circus, our spring show, Circus Fracas, we had a we had, okay, yes, we did have a character who would run across the stage with various, like, signs that would say things for, like, comedic effect. I cannot, for the life of me, place what they were saying. It doesn't really matter, but the fact is there was a specific little holder for these signs, and the size of the hole for the wood of the stick of the sign was about the size of a finger. So, like, one <laughs> Saturday rehearsal, uh, this one girl stuck her finger in the hole for no reason and then then Jacob said he was right there when it happened and she was like maybe just like I won't say anything like I don't think anyone will notice if I don't say anything and then it was like five minutes past her cue and we're all like where's Skylar and then she was like guys that was that was definitely like a keynote for me of community bonding that was just funny I think that why that year seems like at least for me it might have been the best is because it seemed like the year that like had the biggest crossover between like newer members of youth circus that had moved up from the other program like the younger program like myself I was one of those people so there's a lot of us that year and then there's also a lot of people from the previous generation I'm just gonna say like James's generation kind of that so like the older people there's a significant amount of old people and then also there was like a decent amount of people that were just like brand new to circus center so I feel like that combination created kind of like a dynamic troop, honestly. Because Fracas was pretty ambitious as a plot line in terms of it was very story-based. Everyone had their character arc. It was the first time that we had done something so story-based, at least like while I was there. And I think that in combination with the fact that it was in such an intimate space like the theater and not like the big gym, it was like just too much for us. I don't know. Like as a group, it was, it was, um, cause we have like our acting that we do as a part of our normal schedule, but it was never, 
it was never comprehensive I, enough for us to feel confident yeah. portraying people that aren't just sort of like a confident version of ourselves. Definitely too ambitious for people that don't have real acting experience and also people that we hadn't really worked in the theater ever. We hadn't worked in a smaller space. It was weird for aerialists because they had like a shorter amount of air um, real estate, if you will. And then yeah. like acrobats also had a, had a shorter width of the thing. So there's not as much power tumbling. Definitely a weird setup. But the funny thing is looking back on it, I still think of it as like one of my favorite show experiences just because of like the forced camaraderie of it. While I do think, okay, skill-wise, I'd say that's not my favorite show, obviously, because I wasn't, that was, like, at my worst, objectively, because it was when I first joined Youth Circus. But from there on out, I felt like the next, well, we only have done two shows since there, then, because of the pandemic. Yeah, because in my last year, it was 2020, pandemic. This year, we're not doing a big show, also pandemic. So, yeah, the other two shows we did were both related to transit to buses to person being in new city i cannot tell you for the life of me the difference in plot between the last two shows 2018 2019 i just there were slightly different people james was in one of them and not the second one but i mean i was even i even forgot about the pancakes story that was like my thing at circus for a second which was what's the pancake story oh you this was where i tell this one again oh okay I'll, I'll tell the i'll retell the pancake story because i was recently reminded by rachel that this existed but basically i it was like a sunday in my household and my mom made french toast no pancakes that's literally <laughs> <laughs> story and i <laughs> fucked up already what food is he saying? <laughs> okay, okay okay so she made pancakes and you know she's like yelling up pancakes already and i'm super excited and if you've never been in a house with me you might not know this but like i gallop down the stairs pretty fucking aggressively even just in a general like way of life and yeah. this time i guess i was so excited like burst out my door and as I was like running down the stairs I like slipped no I did that thing where you know when you're like going down the stairs too aggressively and then you kind of like twist your ankle or something or you fuck up in a way where you're like the only way I can survive this without falling to my death is if I just jump from here I think that happened but I like jumped from like like almost at the top of the stairs <laughs> so I like landed and sprained my ankle and was like laying on the floor like ah, I don't think I can get up <laughs> like, okay weren't you like you were out from circus because of the pancake story I, I went I like I went and I was like look at my swollen ankle and they're like oh no like did you do a runoff back handspring like back to I was like I fell down the stairs <laughs> And so yeah I like Colin made me stick my foot in an ice bucket like every night which worked eventually but it was it's just like it's such a stupid injury because you basically are out of you can't train anything for like two weeks but like you can still get up and do things it's so stupid it's like oh I can't train but I can kind of just exist in this weird middle state and I did something like that again like I had the same exact type of injury where it's like a strain or almost a sprain like a year later 
And that was like less, it wasn't as iconic as pancakes, but I was talking to Jacob and we were walking downstairs to the lockers and he was like, did you know that the prime minister of Australia like got eaten by an alligator or something? And I was like, what? And like, just looked. And at that moment I had stepped on sort of like the island of a stairs, you know how it connects like two staircases through like that flat island thing. Yeah. I like stepped on that without realizing it wasn't a stair. So I actually twisted my ankle just by like not paying attention to where I'm walking. And that's even more stupid than the pancakes thing. Because at least the pancakes has, like, a dramatic flair that, like, I was super excited. I was running down the stairs and I just, like, jumped to my death. But yeah, the, the, the pancakes. But, like, the prime minister of Australia getting eaten by, like, some outlandish Australian animal story is, like, way less exciting. And Yeah. 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 Are you growing a mustache, by the way? I literally just noticed. I'm trying to. It doesn't it, really. It kind of like you kind of have like Pedro Pascal vibes right now. It's like not quite the fullness of his mustache, but like your hair length combined with the mustache. I so it looks better when like my face is shaved. I like haven't shaved for a while, so it looks kind of just messy. But like, but... can you actually grow facial hair? No. No. So it's more just like, like I also like how I look with facial hair better than without facial hair. So I am like yeah. trying to figure out this balance. I think Justin Bieber did it at some point recently where like he can't grow a mustache either, but he's just doing it anyways. Yeah. Um, he's in his musty era for sure. I think that's kind of like a trend though right now for like men. Yeah. Like- oh my God. <laughs> yeah, look at that. It's just kind of like tragic. <laughs> it just looks but wrong. Like, it's what I can do. So it's what I'm doing because it's my face and I can do what I want with it. Oh, yeah, you can do whatever. <laughs> you can do whatever you want with it. So it's hard to feeling say. Like, feeling like a horse protagonist while listening to Lana Del Rey. That, though, like, was a pretty peak thought of mine. Because I, 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 I don't did... know what it, like, what is it about Lana Del Rey? What is it about Lana Del Rey's music that, like, makes that the case because it's so true like i feel like i'm in a movie as an animated horse and i am the protagonist of this movie and like why okay i can think of songs that make me feel like that and that's definitely like mariner's apartment complex makes me feel like that I mean, that one was used for a trend on TikTok that was, like, when you're at the airport and you're, like, ready to start your new life. And I was like, yeah, no, like, that's the vibe it gives off. Like, it's a little bit corny, but, like, without pushing the line. So that's where I get it from. And I got it a lot from listening to her new album. Um, yeah. Like, I think Wild at Heart. I mean, it's mostly... Like you, you don't listen to Born to Die and you're like, wow, I really feel like an animated horse. Yes, but- <laughs> yes and no, because you can interpret ride as not only your idea of like what a girl boss is, but also your actually that's horse. true. Ride I, could be interpreted. I'll, ret- I'll retract my statement because it's so true. No, but like you're right. Born to die, I associate with the like what I thought a whore was when that album yeah. came out. Like you're not gonna be listening to summertime sadness. You with could that be a mind. I mean, you could be a whore. This is, <laughs> well, like, this is the issue with Lana's music is that since, you definitely since, could, since you? I pointed this out, I realized that even the songs that I consider like, oh, this is her classic sort of like, I'm a whore and like I have daddy issues. Like even those songs that are blatantly that vibage, you could still interpret yeah. like you're a horse protagonist yeah. in a Disney film. Yeah. And that's sort of why I'm like 
stunned that I put it into words, but also confused. And I'm really like even even the pre-horse music has like horse elements that can be recognized now that the red <laughs> are of the hints, yeah. if you will, equestrian yeah. equestrian notes within the structure of her lyrics. Like we have to be able to pinpoint which elements exactly. It like is. if it's an instrument, is it like a lyrical? To me, it's the device. quality. It's the quality. It's the melody. It's the structure of a, the melody combined with like the instruments. Like it's just the sound. It's the sonic quality of it. Like it's not <laughs> always the lyrics. Okay, I'm yeah. looking at. Let's start from the top. So I guess that would be chemtrails from over the country club. Like honestly, white dress could be a horse song <laughs> like except for the fact that where she like vapes in the middle like obviously that's like a little bit out of horse character if you will but like yeah. so much of this is a mixture is like very horsey with like the exception of like Tul Tulsa Jesus Freak is like yeah that's a little bit less horsey and more mm -hmm. like I'm like this is sexy you know but again like even the like less horsey songs there are moments where you can really feel like, like if you interpret okay. it in that way, it still works. I don't know if I'm right about this, but I, I consider all of Norman fucking Rockwell to be a horse in her horse genre of- Absolutely. Like all of it. I mean, Every I think, that's, song. Like, I even, think that's the album that really sparks the, the horsiness though. Like that's what you listen to where like, it's most evident when you, when you made that thought, when that thought first materialized in your mind and you expressed it. Like, that is the album to go to where you're like, oh my God, I know exactly what Monty means. It's like, the album starts off with the title track and you're like, honestly, I could be a 50-year-old housewife that is like reevaluating her marriage, like with this man. Or you could just be a horse that is like freeing themselves. Yeah. And then, but then uh, Mar the second, yeah, the se second song is Mariner's Apartment Complex, which is where the, the melody like really hits that feeling where you're like why am i like about to like run free in the wind i'm like yeah like the galloping the galloping the, energy like, of it the you tail and <laughs> the, <laughs> the criteria of if it's a lana horse oriented song or not is like could i gallop to this would i gallop to this does yeah. my hair blowing in the wind while i'm streaming this but like, see, I couldn't come up with an example for you, but it's also not all galloping music. Like some of it is like standing at the edge of like a cliff looking yes. over. Yes. Like, I don't know. Looking over the landscape. Maybe there's a sunset too, you know? Oh my God. Yeah, I think we're really getting down to it because here's the thing. It's like, yes, we've pinpointed sort of the key offender of this phenomenon in the sonic quality of her music because if you go even just back to the album before that lust for life doesn't have most of that it, to me it doesn't i mean okay get free and tomorrow never came are two that absolutely are horsey but like so much of it because she was like reaching out to collaborate with people like ASAP Rocky and Playboy Cardi and she was like tapping into she was trying to be like sexy and she was like people like trap beats now so this is what I'm doing yeah and so that's what she was doing and it was like she was trying to free herself from just the slow stuff yeah and then Honeymoon is honestly this album is just like what 13 year old me's idea of a whore is like most of it does not feel horsey in my opinion 
I do not listen to High by the Beach and think like I'm a horse. I think like I don't know. You know what makes me feel like a horse though is West Coast on Yeah. Yes. Like that is that is another peak horsey song. Because but it's also sexy. That's what is like so funny about that's it. What's because like, about like it. that like, song to me is like it can go in two different, entirely divergent directions in terms of what we've really hit on is the fact that like for a song to have the energy emulate the feeling of being a horse doesn't negate the fact that it could be inherently sexy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just like I just like, where is this going, though? I'm sorry. As soon as that left my mouth, I was like, where have I devolved as a human being? Like, I had to be conceived, birthed, raised, gone to school. Like, I had to do so much in my life up to this very second that I'm talking about this right now. And this is what I choose to talk about with my platform. I think it's important. I think it's a very unique position to take on her music like there's there's other critiques that people have but like this music makes me feel like i am a horse protagonist is very new it's very like fresh in the discourse and i like, think it i, I don't even think anthony fantano could come up with that like yeah no offense to the needle drop but this is the type of discourse that is not positive or negative it is just purely just a neutral observational abstract yeah you point and i think we should do it for more music because okay i be- okay well can this- we find any other horsey artists or you know artists yes. that have other oh yes that aren't necessarily horses but honestly okay so this artist i actually sadly only found out about because she was on one of lana's uh songs on chemtrails but Way's blood Way's blood her album titanic rising is like amazingly like like it's just like it's amazing right and i only found out about it recently but it's from like 2019 what's horsey about it is that like the emotional like yes it's really emotional but it's not emotional in like a purely sad purely sexy way that which are like the two sort of hallmarks of what i think lana's non-horsiness is but it's more like reflective. And I think the what we're getting at is that the reflection yeah. is what makes oh, you feel like absolutely a horse. That. Yeah. I mean, it's the conjuring up of an image with the lyrics that I think is a big part of the horsiness. Because I think horses as animals, we generally associate them as being kind of mysterious and majestic and poetic. Like the image of like being out in the countryside or like in the foothills of the mountains, you know, there's rolling grassy hills and here comes galloping by a horse. Like there's something mysterious there's about something that. Elusive. And like almost almost like spiritual about it. And that's where I think the reflective, reflective, reflexive quality of certain songs can come to be associated with those images, right? Because if you're in the moment in one of those spaces where, you know, it's like that sort of rolling hills galloping scene, you're in a very reflective state, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's a sunset or you yourself are at the edge of the cliff looking over the landscape or you yourself are running through a field. Like that's a very reflective state to be in. And those are also, you know, environments where we expect a horse to be. 
so I think that's part of the connection. I definitely that was a really hear long-winded the, way of getting to where I was trying to go. But I know exactly, I think every single word you just said was important because that imagery can help someone listening who like doesn't, okay, to all the people who said they didn't understand what I meant when I said you feel like a horse protagonist, I'm pretty sure James just broke down pretty effectively what it means to embody like what we associate with being a horse. There's something elusive about it, but as he you kept expect, saying, listening to Lana Del Rey's music, you expect the wind to be blowing in your hair, just as you expect a horse protagonist in an important scene of a horse movie to have their mane blowing in the wind. Absolutely. I would reaffirm that a million percent. And that's why I'm trying to think of another artist that might fit it to a T quite like Lana does, because I think she truly embodies it. I mean, yes, you could make cases for someone like Dolly Parton, like country stars, Casey Musgraves, definitely. Maybe even- but That's not could... like a horse protagonist. That's like a horse side character, I feel. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> no way, because you're right. Make, please, let's, okay. How can we make a case that Casey Musgraves is the horse side character? <laughs> it makes more sense. Like, I don't know. Like so Lana, no, 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 here's what it is. Because Lana's music again is very pensive, like it's very like intellectual almost. Yeah. And Casey Musgraves' music is like fun. It's like we're just doing it, you know. Just like you know, if you're gonna go to the stables and ride your horse for a minute, like it's an activity, but it's not the main event. <laughs> you know. Whereas like the, to be the horse protagonist, the horsey imagery has to intersect with like a deep reflective state you're right like a main character like the journey we would go on with the protagonist an emotional journey yes yeah and or I, like you know character changing over time there has to be just, an arc to it rather than it being like a staccato moment like a like boom like here's an image we're having a good time you know right you're so right and because this is not to say that casey musgraves does not have up and downs in her storytelling she has happy and sad at the same time she does give us versatility but the thing is is like the level of like this we're talking from a sonic perspective she's not melodramatic about it yeah her the way that she describes the fluctuation of her emotions is more like how you'd see it emotions like pgified in yeah in like a disney film but i just love how quickly you knew like no like she's obviously a side character horse because you're right yeah. but like the fact that instinctually intuitively you were like no this is exactly where she fits i mean i think casey musgraves maybe is the horse at the stable where there are other horses you know and maybe yeah. they're at like horse school or something but lana is when one of the horses like breaks out of the school and decides to go against the pack and go mountain okay what are your thoughts on where mitski fits into all of this because i would argue that like yeah for some reason she carries no this is difficult because when i'm thinking about it she carries very deeply reflective and like melodramatic qualities about her work but the way like she doesn't have like a horse a horse is not symbolic of her I think Lord might be. Might Lord have, is a horse. Lord is, a Lord horse. is such a horse. Lord has such horse music, but like, what is the difference between why Lana Del Rey and Lord have horse energy versus 
you know, Mitski's approach to the way that she is working through her emotions in a song. That yeah. is like you know, something that honestly, I think it's something that's like there's something so much more human about it. Even though Lana and Lord explain human experiences, I feel like the experiences they explain are pretty trivial and sound like they could be kind of written by anyone. But the way that like Mitski strikes you in the heart with some of her lines is like deeply human to a point where I can't pretend that I'm the horse standing on the rolling hills observing yeah. the sunset in front of me like i think Mitski. okay literally that one lyric from brand new city i think where she's like if i gave up being pretty i wouldn't know how to be alive i should just move to a brand new city and teach myself how to die like that to me is not like a horse protagonist would not be like that would not that does not align with that yeah. to me that is something that is so intrinsically human woman or woman like misogyny affected person aligned like yeah. that is why i think like mitski can't fit into it not yeah, because it doesn't deserve much it. of a human being like it's not cinematic it's the ugly it's the like the thoughts racing at 3 a.m the human emotions whereas lana is very cinematic lana is like painting a picture lana is a landscape painting and mitski is like realism you know what i mean yeah, but in a way, Mitski is also expressionist. It, imp- oh my god, impressionist. Mitski is like an intimate image into like the ordinary lives of people. Yes. Whereas Lana is an idealized construction of the world. Exactly. You know what I mean, exactly. I made a playlist called the Lana to Arca Spectrum that I have not added songs to. (laughs) But the reason why I wanted to make it is because we think of, like you said, this is why I bring it up after what you just said, because you're saying she is the epitome, Lana is the epitome of the cinematic song experience, right? And I think of Arca as, even though I have a lot of her songs saved into a playlist for like oh if I had my own sort of like film or tv show about my life like I would kind of want this playing in the back like this is really interesting to me but the soundscape that Arca creates because it's so jarring it's both because it's both jarring and deeply haunting at the same time I put her at the other end of the spectrum because while Mitski like we discussed is like the raw like she really pinpoints raw human emotions you know like the the ordinary person something about Arca is like beyond that point because she like deconstructs like human emotions and like puts it into the sounds that she infuses into her music like all the random jarring metallic sounds or any sort of synthy or even sort of in her self-titled album she really goes into her vocal range and has more orchestral sounds that sort of range of like what feels like post-human or even like a sort of destructured human, like that to me would be an interesting thing to try to accomplish, to get from somewhere like Lana Del Rey's music that makes you feel like an idealized horse protagonist to somewhere where you're like, for me, when I listen to someone like Arca or even Sophie tangentially related, similar, but not quite the same. When I listen to either of those artists, you feel like you're learning about a part of yourself you didn't really know existed just because of the sounds alone. Even though, even if you don't speak Spanish and you don't understand half of what Arca says, I feel like you can still get that feeling. So my ideas of that were really like, 
yeah, I'd start with the horsiest Lana songs and then get to sort of where, you know, she sort of plays with some other sounds. And then I knew Earth Eater has to be the middle because what Arca accomplishes in, you know, creating like a song, an amazing like sound landscape, I think Earth Eater does in a more hollow way. Like it feels cinematic. It feels like I'm at the depths of like, I'm alone, but also like I could be in a movie right now. Like to me, Earth Eater's body of work, especially shit. Um, what's, oh, I don't remember which album it is. It's the one with the orange cover. It's like orange, but that album specifically to me embodies a mixture between like cinema and then also like deconstructed electronic, like jarring music. So that's what, this is me previewing a playlist idea. And if you don't follow me on Spotify, you should. It's Montgomery West, M-O-N-T-G-O-M-E-R-I-E-W-E-S-T. So you should all follow me from when I put that up. But I thought I would plug that just sort of as an interesting concept as of like, you know, when you're listening to music, sometimes it really is fun to describe the experience you're having. Even if now after the fact, when I'm editing this, I might be like, this is utterly ridiculous. Cause it sort of started as us like joking about like making up a definition and trying to pinpoint what exactly it is that we're getting at when we say Lana is a horse protagonist. But now it's evolved into a larger conversation about the nuances between different artists and how they make you feel whether that's like, I'm uncomfortably, I'm uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable, like they can give you an uncomfortable raw feeling and like make you sit with yourself more or like Lana gives you an idealized reality to live in. Yeah. And it's interesting to like compare between artists and what kind of imagery they invoke in like the abstract, in that, that, kind of abstract form. I don't know. That's like not a thought that means anything, but I'm just putting words together into a sentence. Yeah. I mean, do you want to say um, anything about Lord? Yeah. So this? Lord, I think that would those would be two artists that I think would be interesting to put in conversation with each other. Like two horsey artists, Lord and Lana. Like what are the nuances between what kinds of horses they are if they're both horsey music i think lord is a little bit like when you listen to her the horsiness of it feels like less self-aware like she is younger she thinks that all of her experiences are her own nuanced outsider like i think lord taps into feeling like an outsider looking in way more than lana does if that makes sense like all of the quirkiness or sort of reflective nature of Lana's music isn't like, I'm such an outcast in this world. I think Lord stuff is like, if I was Lana Del Rey, but if I was writing Lana Del Rey's horsey music, but like as a 13, 14 year old type of thing, if that makes sense. Like there's sort of a naive quality to Lord's music. I think yeah. That doesn't mean Lord is naive and it doesn't mean Lord's ide- musical ideas are stupid because I love all of her lyrics and all of her music. But do you hear what I'm saying or do you catch my drift at all? It's like Lana Lana's music feels mature enough to be self-aware of its horsiness. Whereas yes. Lord 
is, you know, the like to actually talk about the title of the album, like the melodrama and the imagery, the horsey imagery that that invokes, like is taken seriously, you know? Mm-hmm. Lana knows what she's doing when she creates these like idealized cinematic, like would probably be in a sepia filter if it was in video form. I'm sure actually yes. some of her music videos are like that. Like it's all on purpose and self-aware and Lord is experiencing, you know, her teenage years and her twenties. And when you're that age, like that feels like everything that exists. It feels like the most important thing that could exist. And everything that happens to you is like so new and so profound that it's hard to be self-aware of the like, the- The connotation of what- The connotations of what your representations of those moments might be. Yes. You know? Like, I'm sure 19-year-old Lord who wrote melodrama, that was all real for that Lord. Yeah. But now she's sort of like, I don't, we don't know if she's actually taking a break. Like, for all we know, she could have been crafting something that represents sort of like She went to Antarctica, apparently. Yeah. And she's about going to Antarctica. So in addition to that, I mean, it's not crazy to think that like, maybe she would have written a tune or two about what her young, younger 20s have been. But I would imagine that like, her not only having access to listening to something she wrote and released when she was 19, and then also, at, like, more than that, like, at six, at the age of 16, Pure Heroin was, like, in the middle of her, like, teenage years, like, a sophomore in high school. Like, yeah. I remember being that age, and even at the time, like, thinking I had interesting or high-quality opinions, to actually have a public and popular body of work out representing me at that time, I would I would be a little bit cringed out. And I think we all get cringed out when we think about any version of ourselves that is not our present self, whether that be like two days ago, something you said in a conversation or like two years ago or five years ago, but especially to that scale when you have something that popular. I would imagine that it's both rewarding to release something that is so earnestly you in the moment and that feels so important to what you're experiencing in the moment. Like it's equally that as it is of just a sort of reminder of like, wow, I really thought all that mattered at the time. And look at me, here I am now in Antarctica writing a book type of thing. And I think that's like a really interesting quality that Lord's music has that at least regardless of if they are like sonically cohesive, her albums, the concept behind where she's writing from will always, it doesn't have to be, but it seems like it's going to be consistent in that it's like always a pure, like just sort of unabashful representation of what she's going through in the moment. Whereas like, like Lana's is more curated. Yeah. It's almost as if, you know, if Lord were potentially to... Um, write about her teenage years in her 20s, it would be different. You know, if she had written Pure Heroin, not as she was going through those things, but from a future perspective, reflecting on them. Like, I think her body of work might end up looking a lot more like Lana's in terms of it's the manifestation of its horsiness, you can say. Yeah, exactly. So, but what kind of horse is Lord? 
I like a donkey, <laughs> like a little pony. I don't know. Yeah. No, that's such an interesting thought, though, because like in my mind, they don't have to be a different type of horse. It's more like what we said. It's just like a developmental age thing. Because mm-hmm. even when I pick, when I think of like, oh, I'm a horse, like maybe I don't necessarily have to look a certain way. Like I'm not visualizing like, yes, I'm like this white, super muscular, elegant horse with blue I've eyes. Like a like sort of. I picture like, like a caramel, yellowish, yeah, a yellowish tan- caramelish horse with like a white stripe down the. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think that fits Lana's vibe. I think Lord... I think it has to do with the sepia filter, though. Yeah, no, definitely the sepia affects I think Lord is, like, a black... No, like a black or Or brown. Like, dark brown, dark brown. I'm glad we're on the same page with this. I feel like we've been on the same page for a while with this conversation, and I can't believe it took us this long to... No, but there's, like, like, there's actually something here. There's so much to say about this. I'm surprised. I didn't think that we'd be able to talk this long about a horse protagonist. But But I'm glad we did. I'm glad we brought it up. Because, like, it makes me think more... Because, like, there's some people's music who is better off, like, not categorizing as some sort of, like, trivial, funny metaphor. Because, like, you know, I made that metaphor, that connection, sort of as a joke, but also kind of, like, just observing, like, what is it about her music that makes me feel, like what really am I feeling and how can I boil that down into something everyone can understand regardless of if they even like her music. But there are so many artists that like, I just feel like can't be classified. Like, I don't think of a lot of other artists as like being boiled down to like a type of animal because sometimes an animal's archetype is already too set in stone that like, you know, an artist just doesn't, quit fit doesn't fit quite as perfectly as like lana del rey as a horse yeah because like i mean if we're gonna be like technical about it you could say like someone like taylor swift has horsey music but to me it's I don't not know the taylor same swift, i think taylor swift has like dog music <laughs> wait, 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 wait. elaborate because i like kind of think i know where you're coming from but like can we like, like get into is there a breed in mind is there like what is I'm thinking your vibe? Like, like really like small dogs that their owners might dress up you know all kinds of breeds but very small dogs that their owners might dress up and like go for a walk i imagine this being like mostly rich people's dogs um i'm not sure like what this is going nowhere. Okay, but... okay, okay. We could, we could, we could, we could cool off this conversation. We can cool off the conversation. Because that was like pretty solid. Yeah. All right. Thank you again for listening. This has been another episode of Often Wrong, Never in Doubt with Montgomery West featuring James Dallapay.